everybody in AUSA knows who Kevin Fahey is, wants to talk to Kevin, because the one thing that people, if you've never heard Kevin speak before, it's unfiltered. He never has put a filter on it. Um, I don't know how he managed to stay in the, the Pentagon as long as he did, because he always told the truth. Whether you liked it or you didn't like it, he just kind of would tell you. Welcome to The Lojo Show. I am your host, Lovitcher Jones. I have over 21 years of cybersecurity experience, and I am honored to be able to bring some of that experience to you. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of our exclusive series with Katie Arrington. We have given Katie a platform to let loose and let us know what the real deal is. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes with Katie, I highly recommend you go and give that a listen. Katie continues to give us the on-the-ground perspective within the Department of Defense. The statements of our guests are their own and are not reflective on the opinions of the host or our sponsors. We are very excited to continue this series. Please join us for this fantastic episode. We hope you enjoy. Welcome back to the Lojo Show, everyone. Um, I'm so excited today about today's show. Today, we're going to talk about acquisitions. Um, you guys who aren't familiar with DOD acquisitions or government acquisitions in general, it is not really cut and dry and straightforward. There is an art form to it as well as a science and there is a culture to it as well. Um, we have Kevin Fahey here along with Katie Arrington, which we've been on our series. This is our fifth episode in our series with Katie. And she said, Lovacher, you better have Kevin on with me. That's not true. She didn't say it that way. Uh, she said it'd be great. Uh, yeah, I did. Been on. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> I do not fold to your pressure, Katie. I don't fold to that. Uh, <laughs> But yes, we are the first person who hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's because I'm 800 miles away from you. Mm-hmm. Okay. That, that, that may be it. <laughs> but yes, um, Kevin is on. I'm gonna let Kevin give his background to you, and then uh, from there we'll uh, we'll have his background and stuff also posted on our on our bio site too. So uh, Kevin, love to introduce you, and then everybody you already know Katie. So we'll uh, we'll let him go ahead first. All right. Thanks for inviting me, Lojo. And it's always uh, fun to uh, uh, be on anything with Katie Arrington, right? As you know, she makes any everything exciting and fun, and you never know what the hell she's going to say. So just to give you my background, right? So I'm an engineer by degree. Um, I started uh, with the Army um, in 1981 when I graduated from college, right? So I was an Army intern as a civilian. Uh, my first uh, job after a year's school at Red River Army Depot um, was at Waterweed Arsenal, which makes cannon barrels. So it was a really cool job for a young 20-year-old to uh, make things that shoot things that go boom, right? So that was a, a lot of fun. I spent uh, uh, six and a half years there, then moved to Picatinny Arsenal. Um, Picatinny Arsenal basically is known for weapons and ammunition. Um, and so I was there for 17 years. So I, I sort of, uh, I tell people I, I grew up there. Um, you know, so I was an engineer by background. I, uh, when I was at Waterloo, I was a quality engineer. When I was at Picatinny, I started as a system engineer. Um, really, um, I wasn't a very good engineer, so I got into uh, management. So I was really a program manager. Um, when the 
Department of Defense formed an acquisition corps in the, the late 80s. I was like one of the original uh, people in the acquisition corps, uh, went to program management school at Fort Belvoir for 20 weeks. Um, after I did that, I uh, was basically uh, um, went into a, a program office as a, a new program office. So I was sort of chief engineer, almost head of quality, uh, I was almost ahead of everything except for budget. Uh, you know, they don't, didn't let me touch the money. Um, and then I went from there to being the chief engineer for this program that was AFIS Favre, then Crusader, um, which was like one of the major acquisition programs in the Army. I went from being chief engineer to being deputy uh, PM. Um, and I was deputy PM Crusader for a few years. Uh, and then I got promoted to senior executive service in 2000. So my first job in uh, secretary, uh, uh, executive service was I was the uh, technical director of what they called the Close Combat Armament Center, which included Benet Weapons Lab, which designs cannon barrels. So they were at Waterville Arsenal, um, uh, all, all small cal ammunition and weapons, all medium cal ammunition and weapons, all tank ammo and uh, weapons, all fuses and non-lethal. That's uh, what was in the R&D center that I led. And then uh, uh, in 2002, I became deputy program executive officer for ammunition. It was a new, it was one of my funnest jobs, mainly because it was a new uh, um, organization. It was set up by the secretary of the army and the chief of staff of the army. Uh, that and PEO soldier was set up at the same time, program executive officer ammo and program executive officer soldier. I was a deputy PM there for uh, a couple years, and then I moved to Detroit, Michigan. And uh, Detroit, Michigan, um, I was a program executive officer for combat vehicles. Um, uh, that was, you know, all the neat stuff, the, the tanks, the Bradleys, the, you know, the self-propelled howitzers, uh, strikers. Uh, um, I did, uh, I had a large role in the uh, mind resistant ambush protection program, which you might be familiar with, which was a big program for uh, Afghanistan uh, and Iraq. Then I went, I was there for about five years, and then I was a program executive officer for combat support, combat service support. Um, and actually, that's, I, the, I identify that as uh, the things that nobody else wanted that didn't logically go in another portfolio. I did everything from toilets to tugboats to trucks to backhoes, uh, you name it, uh, in combat service support. Actually, MRAP uh, followed me. Uh, so I was there for about five years. And then uh, um, in about 2000, uh, uh, beginning of 2004, um, I moved to the uh, Pentagon. I actually offered to move to the Pentagon. I was basically what they called the uh, um, uh, System of Systems Engineering and Integration Director, uh, Executive Director. So I was sort of the integration guy uh, between PEOs, which is never easy, probably easier for me than a lot, because uh, I think at that time, out of the 12 PEOs, I think five of them had worked for me as a colonel. So they uh, were more apt uh, to work for uh, with me. Um, that's really where I first met Katie. Part of my job in that job was uh, um, uh, uh, cyber focal. So I was responsible for working with the Army Cyber Command and, uh, um, and they were like brand new, setting up the uh, 
cyber mission forces and uh, looking for kit and looking for their uh, capabilities that they needed to do their job. And so I, I had the idea um, that we should form a consortium to quickly uh, get after the requirements of the uh, Army Cyber Command. Um, so we, we held a meeting out at MITRE um, to sort of introduce the idea. I will tell you, and you, you, you could relate to this, um, a lot of industry, mostly the big uh, companies, didn't think we needed anything to just give them all the money and they would, uh, they would figure it out. And this uh, little five foot uh, lady full of uh, energy uh, stands up. I can't remember whether she had to stand on her chair or not so we could see her and basically said, uh, <laughs> said uh, hey, I represent small business. I think this is a great idea. And she went on and on. And I, Ron Pontius, who was the uh, deputy for Army Cyber, executive director of Army, Army Cyber Command was sitting next to me. And I turned to him and I said, I think I love that lady. Uh, because she was supporting what we were trying to do, and we were getting a lot of pushback um, from uh, uh, industry. So I finished, uh, I retired from the Army um, my first time around retiring from the Department of Defense in 2015. Um, uh, came to where I work now, Cypress International, which is a small consulting firm. At that time, I was in charge of weapon systems and armaments, com combat vehicle armaments. And then two years being here, um, and I could tell the story, um, I agreed to go back into the Pentagon, right? So uh, uh, I was here from January um, uh, uh, 16 to February 18. I went in the Pentagon from February 18 uh, to January 20. Uh, um, January 20th, uh, uh, 2020, uh, and I was the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Acquisition uh, I had no desire, no interest to go back in the Department of Defense, but uh, um, after offering the job, I couldn't refuse it because, you know, it was one of those that I had an opportunity to change things, and if I didn't do it, I would always regret it. So um, uh, that's why I did it. Um, and, I, and so I, I started that job in uh, um, January 20. Uh, uh, Katie, as, as you probably know, had a political career. Um, at the end of that year, um, I offered her a job. She him and hard, I think, for like five minutes, um, and then uh, uh, called me back. I think uh, not too long after that, and asked me if I was serious. Um, and, and basically, what I saw, and it was less than a, a year. I think it was probably the November timeframe. Um, that I offered their job, but I saw there was very little experience, knowledge, passion on how do we deal with cyber. Um, and cyber, from my perspective on acquisition, was really related to two things. Um, one is what's the cybersecurity of the defense industrial base, and two is cyber resiliency of our weapon systems. I will tell you, um, Nine times out of 10, when I was talking to people about cyber, they, they didn't even understand the difference. People like to talk about cyber, not really having a clue the difference between, you know, making a company secure and making a weapon system secure, but they like to talk about it. Um, you know, so I, I, will, uh, I, I, will, I will take a little bit of a break there, let Katie sort of emphasize anything I missed during that time. And then I will uh, talk about what I thought we, some of the focuses that I thought we did when we were there, when I was the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Acquisition. So there's a couple of things, right? So first of all, I ambushed him um, to have him come back. 
Um, I was a political candidate um, and there, I'd asked Kevin to come and keynote an event that had nothing to do with my political candidacy. I was deeply involved in the Charleston um, community, defense community, before I ran for office. And it was that during their summit, uh, the CDC summit, um, I had been the chair, I had stood down so I could run for Congress, but yet we still had Kevin Fahey coming as a keynote. And um, I ambushed him. I told him there was a meeting that he needed to go to after. And Kevin uh, is probably one of the most uh, laid back individuals. Um, you know, he's very unassuming. If you, which was really fun, like you go to AUSA with Kevin and it's like walking around with the Pope. Everybody in AUSA knows who Kevin Fahey is, wants to talk to Kevin because the one thing that people, if you've never heard Kevin speak before, it's unfiltered. He never has put a filter on it. Um, I don't know how he managed to stay in the, the Pentagon as long as he did, because he always told the truth, whether you liked it or you didn't like it. He just kind of would tell you. And he's, um, if you haven't heard in his accent, he might be from Massachusetts. There might just a slight tinge of, of uh, an accent left in there. But I ambushed him and put him in a room uh, with Senator Tim Scott and his team. And I said, hey, Mr. Trump is looking to build out these amazing capabilities within the Department of Defense. And you'd be remiss if you didn't talk to this one guy. And Kevin's like, oh, hell no, I'm getting up and walking out of this meeting. I have no desire to be here. I'm, I'm worth Cyprus. And at the same time, I was going down that route. Ellen Lord, who was the nominee um, and the undersecretary for ANS, was also pursuing Kevin. Um, so he is a, what I call lightning in a bottle. There are, and Kevin, I, I adore you professionally. You are a mentor to so many, but you are rare. You are very unique. And there are no others like you. And his time is so incredibly valuable because he doesn't go through the BS. So what you're going to hear in the next 40 minutes is literally why what happened in the Pentagon happened in the Pentagon and in the industry while he was there is because Kevin worked in it for 30 years and knew what was wrong and wanted to change it. So you guys are on the ride of your life because I don't think there's ever been an event. He speaks to goes to forums and he speaks for 30 minutes or an hour. And I've been in the audience for hundreds of them. People just sit there, they standing ovation. They always walk away saying this is the best conversation they've ever heard. But now that Kevin's out of the DOD, and looking in, and we can look at what we were doing together as a team. And when I talked in, you know, my podcast with you, Lojo, in one, two, three, and four, I talked about leadership is key. This man exemplifies leadership. And I, I, he's the one who taught me, put good people in place and let them do their job. Don't micromanage them. Be their offense. Make sure you're clearing their, their tactical environment so they can get done what they need to get done. Give them guidance. But, uh, and, and he is the one who taught me, Kevin, how long should somebody stay in a job? Three to five years. Maximum. And why is that, sir? Well, because you uh, start drinking your own bathwater after that. <laughs> Amen. So, so Lojo, take us into segment, what, your next question. All right. So, Kevin, we uh, 
Katie, Katie has definitely told me what, from her perspective, what was wrong. Right. And I, I'm sure it might be close or it may not. I don't want to lead you into it, but you know, what was wrong? What's wrong in acquisitions, right? What was your kind of assessment of that current state when you walked in as far as, and you and Katie walked into your, to your new positions and stuff there uh, at the time. And then what were some of the things that you said, you know what, for overall preparation for the future, here's what has to happen, right? What's kind of your unvarnished, what was wrong? What'd you need to do to fix it? Where are we now today based on your current assessment of that? Yeah, so um, what I would tell you, um, there was a lot wrong, um, and there's still a lot wrong, what I tell you, right? So um, the, the one thing that's just, I mean, uh, you know it your whole career, but it becomes more and more evident in every job that you have. You know, acquisition is one of those areas where um, uh, you can't get acquisition done if everybody that's supposed to do their job doesn't do their job but everybody around you that should be doing their job wants to help you with acquisition and has no idea what it is, right? Um, and that, that was probably the thing that bothered me the most about being in DOD was everybody had an opinion on acquisition, but if they would do their own job, I wouldn't really have a hard time doing acquisition, right? Um, so uh, the first, you know, the first part is, is I'll tell you, um, uh, Miss Lord gave me, um, uh, un, you know, just to really go back a little bit on, on going back into the Pentagon, right, is uh, just to tell the story because it's sort of funny, is Katie did do exactly what she said. What I did agree coming out of the meeting with Senator Scott's staff is I would consider the Army acquisition job once the Army decided on their secretary because I wanted to know who I'd work for to make sure I could do the things I wanted to do in the Army. But at that time, the Army um, uh, took forever to get an Army secretary. Um, so I really didn't have to uh, make a decision there. And then Miss Lord, as, 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 uh, as uh, Katie said, um, uh, took me out to dinner and said, um, hey, do you want that job? And I said, you didn't offer me a job. And she said, the, secretary, the, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Acquisition. And I said, absolutely not. Right. And she said, oh, don't true story. She said, don't make a decision today. Think about it. And I'm thinking I'm not going into OSD. That's the organization I hated my whole career. Right. And so like the next day she has like the, the office that sort of usually interviews you to see if you're competent to do the job um, uh, calls me in. And I said, I'll come in and see you. And they begged me to do it because Miss Lord made him do it. And uh, I said, no, I'm really I'm really not interested. And the next day the White House personnel people called me in, which I don't know why they did that, because they explained to me I'd make $20,000 less as a political as I did when I was a government SES when I retired three years earlier or two years earlier. So that was sort of depressing. And then the following week, the chief of staff of the secretary calls me in and says, hey, will you come to talk to me? And I said, I won't use the words he used, but he but that's where I changed my mind that I couldn't refuse it is he said, why do you want this job? And I'm thinking, and I say to him, I go, I don't. And then he says, why would we want you? You're one of those bad acquisition guys. Why would we want? I, th I legitimately thought I was on candid camera, right? Because I didn't want. And so then he proceeded to tell me every reason why I do want the job, right? Is there, Secretary Mattis was amazing. He was a great guy to work for. Miss Lord gave me complete uh, authority. Congress was helpful. And when I got home that night, uh, my wife looked at me and she said, oh, damn. I said, what? She says, you're going back. And I got to the point that I said, 
you know, I, I would regret more not trying it than banging my head against the wall trying to change it, right? And so I, that's when I decided to go back in. And, and I will tell you, Katie every day said I needed to go back. And, I, and she'll tell you up until that day, I was not going back. But when I got there, Ms. Lord came up with this phrase, the adaptive acquisition framework, right? She said, we, we need to make it adaptive. And she didn't give me any guidance, any, any direction, just you need to make it adaptive. You need to make people do critical thinking on, on how do you do acquisition, right? And that's where, and I will give um, um, General Dave Bassett some credit because he's, he's one of the people of my career I talked with probably more than anybody else about acquisitions and the problem of acquisitions. He's now um, uh, the defense contracting uh, agency uh, commander as a three-star general. Um, but he, we, we always talked about the idea of, uh, of making acquisition where you tailor in. DOD 5000, which is the regulation that dictates how you do um, um, acquisition, was a big, big uh, uh, policy that basically told you how you did the most sophisticated acquisition that you could ever dream of in the world and then told everybody to tailor out for you doing less. And right, so if you were doing a truck, you had a tailor out of a document that was like, you know, three inches thick, right? Or, or even more, it was big. And so I, can't, I, I told Ms. Ward that I have this idea that what's right 5,000 that basically says everything should be tailored in, right? Because I, I will tell you over my career, and I've told this story and I won't use the swears that I usually do, um, is that there were many times that I did stupid crap because it was easier to do stupid stuff uh, than it was to get it tailored out because you had to convince the guy who owned that piece of, of, of regulation to agree to tailor it out of your program. I will tell you, I did like corrosion protection plans when I was buying a commercial backhoe, right? There was nothing I was gonna go do different on that backhoe but it was easier to do a stupid document than it was to tailor out on many instances. And so I came up with the idea that we need to do the framework that says everybody needs to do the critical thinking to deliver capability and everything's tailor in, right? And then and that's where, you know, things like the things that Katie did, like cybersecurity or, or, or program security or sustainment. So it was one of those things, I don't care what you're delivering, whether it be a truck or a missile, you need to do sustainment planning, you need to do cybersecurity. So it sort of like gave all the instructions on how you tailor in. And my mentality was now the functional guys are gonna help a PM because they're gonna help the PM come up with the right functional program uh, to make that program successful. It was one of those that, you know, if you're, you, you know, I will tell you in hindsight, there's things that I would have done differently. Um, there were, we had a bunch of instructions, like I said, logistics, sustainment, um, you know, all the stuff Katie did, cybersecurity, uh, program security, um, you name it. We had instructions that told you how to do certain things, program protection, intellectual property. But we also came up with what we called six acquisition pathways, right? Major acquisition, urgent acquisition, uh, business systems, uh, services, uh, middle tier of acquisition. 
um, and, and a few other, um, I, would, I wouldn't have had any pathways in software, that was the sixth one. I wouldn't have done any pathways if I was to do it over again, I'd have them all be instructions. And the reason I say that is everybody uh, thinks they need to go into one of those six pathways. You know, and in, 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 in many instances, some of programs, if you're a major acquisition program today, it's highly probable you're also doing a lot of uh, software. And so um, you're almost doing two pathways. So it's almost like if I did it over again, I'd have no pathways, I'd have all instructions, because then you could do instructions like shipbuilding uh, space because they're different acquisitions. And the whole idea is, um, you know, uh, tailor end, do the things you need to do to deliver the capability you're, you're, you're chartered to do. Um, and then the other pieces of that, um, in, in addition to the, the framework uh, that we focused on, you know, the next piece, which is usually usually the um, biggest uh, uh, um, uh, bottleneck and, and challenge is in the contracting area. I was lucky, and I think Katie mentioned it in, in their previous uh, uh, podcast, was I was lucky because the guy that was in charge of procurement most of the time uh, defense uh, contracting and procurement when I was there was Kim Harrington, who was very smart in new industry. He was a, uh, a financial officer within industry. He understood things I didn't understand. Um, and a lot of the things that take long in contracting is uh, cost and pricing. And he knew that stuff inside and out. Uh, I will tell you, um, you know, Katie and Kim Harrington were my saviors and Brent Ingraham. Uh, when COVID uh, was going on, uh, because they knew the things they knew to do that we were able to do to help the, the, the COVID stuff. And then the, the next piece, uh, which was the uh, piece Katie led, which was really to have a resilient and secure industrial base, right? Uh, Katie was doing all the cybersecurity of the industrial base. Um, I did have a, a, a good partner in Jen Santos and industrial policy uh, to help with the industrial policy about the supply chain. I will tell you over my career and right now, one of my biggest frustrations has been the lack of understanding of the defense industrial base. Um, uh, right, that's, that's probably, in my opinion, given where we are, probably the highest priority that the Department of Defense should focus on. If I was king for the day, I would get somebody that had managed the supply chain, like on one of our top prime contractors that really understands the supply chain to put into that job. Um, you know, it's a, it's a political job and we have a tendency to put smart people in there and not necessarily people that understand that. And then the last piece that I focused on is, and, and this was one I probably didn't get as much done as I would have liked to get done um, because of COVID. And that is how do we train all the changes, right? How do you train people to think, to do the critical thinking? Not so many times people revert back just to doing the things they used to do. Um, you know, there's a few things that I say all the time, as you know, uh, culture will eat innovation every day of the week. And so if you don't, that's why, you know, when Katie says the three to five year jobs, uh, three year jobs are like normal jobs. You, it takes you a year to learn it. You never get it right the first year and it takes you a third year to make it right. Uh, five years is when you have a hard job. And my reason for five years is because sometimes it takes five years to really change the culture, right? To set the culture 
um, uh, um, ir what you would call irreversible momentum. Um, and then the other piece I would touch on um, is, is uh, you know, some of the things I talked about before. Um, acquisition, people talk about acquisition. We've done, we pay people over and over again to study acquisition reform. And I wish they would just give me the money because I could write the report before anybody ever started it. And usually the reports aren't worth the crap that it's written on. Um, but if you look at it, we've done acquisition reform 100,000 times. We, we, are, we uh, don't do budget reform. We uh, don't do requirements reform, right? And, and, and I will tell you, almost every program that I've had a problem with was usually more in the requirements area than it was in my ability to buy what they told me to buy, right? And a lot of instances, um, there's two things that I tell people, acquisition ain't that hard, right? Is if you just have to align the requirement with the state of technology, i.e. the state of technology has got to be mature enough to deliver what you're asking for on the schedule in the funding that they have given you. That, those, those four things, if they all align, acquisition is not hard within the process in the Pentagon, it's not hard either. It, same thing is you, you need requirements, you need funding. And the hard part in the Pentagon sometimes is to get decisions, right? Um, you know, you know, the other thing is when with Katie, when we first met um, at, at the uh, 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 consortium event, she came up and she said, do you remember me? And I said, yes, I do. Well, the reason I remember her is she friended me on LinkedIn, right? And what I tell people a lot of the times is I'm not really smart, but I have a really good memory, right? And, and so some of the things that people just have to do is that people around acquisition got to do their job and not continue to focus on acquisition. So I'll let Katie add to the things I said. So with that, the adaptive acquisition framework was absolutely critical, right? And all of what Kevin is saying is true. And when we, you know, the CMMC was Kevin's idea, right? That we had the DFAR rule already in place in 2015. We had the acquisition, but we didn't have a framework that it actually fit in somewhere, right? It was just something that industry was checking a box off of, right? You know, that they weren't doing it. And we needed a way to get them compliant. And understanding that, and this is, I think, one of the, the bigger over, you know, looking at what we were doing. Kevin was over weapon systems for, you know, and I say, you know, a million years. Tell me a weapon system that doesn't have cyber in it. Tell me a, a piece of tactical vehicle, a, a tactical vehicle that doesn't have cyber at some shape, form, or fashion. And I mean, now all of our weapons are software enabled at some point in capacity. And for software to be effective, it needs to have security, cyber security. And if we didn't build that into the base layer of the, of the new framework, right? we were missing it because this has been the problem. And Kevin, you know, we, we would talk about this at nauseum, right? Kevin did tactical vehicles. So when Kevin built a, a vehicle, he had what was known as, and what was the percentage you had 10 or 20% for repairs and replacement. What the hell was that called in, in the design of a program? Kevin. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think. Um, you You'd mean, leave money to repair the vehicle in, when you programmed it, when you started yeah, programming and budgeting. What the hell yeah, was that the, line? Uh, I, the, I, op, the op, operation and support money? 
O&M? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, thank you. So in cyber programs, nobody puts that in there. There's, there's nothing, right? They're just like, oh, you know, we put cyber on this thing. Well, cyber changes, right? And and Kevin had the, the brilliant idea that he's like, well, there's there's no difference between the cyber program and this type of program. Like, we're always going to need money, right? There's always going to need to be a, a, a basic slush fund that we can go back because there's always electronic warfare is the adversary is going to find a way to get in and you have to be able to thwart them. And especially with software, right? It's, it's always going to be an evolution thing. And the companies that are dealing with this, right, they're, they're checking a box that they're saying that they're compliant, right? And we have all of these audit capabilities to make sure that companies are compliant, right? So your cost and accounting system gets audited, right? DCMA comes in and they'll audit. It's DCAA or DCMA that audits your cost and accounting system. DCAA, audit agency. The audit agency, they, they come in and they say, okay, yeah, 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 this is right. And you have ISO. So if you're a, a lean six Sigma, um, you're manufacturing, right? You get ISO certifications to make sure that you're doing everything right. Like in the your manufacturing line, that you're doing everything safely, that you're doing everything in the right way as far as manufacturing and putting pieces of the puzzle together within a weapon system. We have all of these so that the burden of that is taken off of the government, right? Because it, they're, they're real busy doing other things. They look to these outside or these agencies to check the box, right? So that you have, you know, not too many cooks in the kitchen. I, I, I say that's been a problem, but there was nobody doing it for freaking cyber. And everybody was just checking the box and the F-35 rolled out. Um, it was obvious to everybody under the sun. The F-35 had been hit because the J-22 came out. Um, you know, there was an amazing study done on, you know, how it was done that that remains in, a, in, a, in, a, in an environment that we can't discuss. Um, but the reality was, and, and I talked about this on, on podcast, too. It's not like Lockheed Martin, when they got the prime award for the F-35 program and all of our NATO partners that participated in that went out and gave the information to China. They didn't. What happened was. A lot of these companies, and, and when Kevin said in the very, you know, few moments ago about having somebody who understands supply chain at the top, you have to understand that every single thing that the department is doing, and and this is federally, right? The departments are doing our tax dollars. They need to have the ultimate protection possible, but you need to have somebody who understands that supply chain and where the risk lies right? Because there's risk in everything that we're doing. And the podcast yesterday that we did with the great spitball analogy and Lojo, that went up on the wire yesterday and people have been cracking up about the spitball analogy, right? But literally that's what we're up against, right? So you need, and what Kevin and the adaptive acquisition framework did, baking cybersecurity in as the fundamental ground floor basics of it, but it was more about understanding that you need to move at a, at a faster rate. That's why this adaptive acquisition framework was created. We can't continue building um, state-of-the-art you know, innovation, capability, technology, and delivering it to the warfighter in the time of relevance, which is a big word, right, when they need it, and living in the McNamara acquisition world. So Kevin was avant-garde. He came in and said, break it. Break the rules. 
right? I remember sitting in a conversation where Kevin Fahey and I think Stacey Cummings and Chris O'Donnell were in the room. And Kevin was, they were arguing how, how do you get software development into earned value management? Do you remember that conversation, Kevin? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it was like, well, it's hard, right? Because in software development, right, you're, what you're developing really doesn't get validated until your user uses the application, right? Milestone A, B, you know, you've got to go through. And the government is not set up like commercial industry. So there are a lot of these roadblocks that are in place, well, we're put in place with the best of intentions that have the worst outcome. And the, the CMMC was one part of, and I, I've said it again and again in all of these podcast series, it was one part of a bigger plan, right? CMMC, when it started in this adaptive acquisition framework was, hey, first of all, making it easier on the PM, because Kevin, I'm gonna, this is, and Lojo, I said it on the podcast before and the listeners that you've heard it before. Kevin, explain to me what's wrong with the government PM today. On the spot. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I don't know. Uh, what's wrong with the government? You know, it depends, right? Is, is, uh, there's a whole, I would argue in some instances, the, the problem is, um, you know, it goes to when I told you the, the fourth piece of what I was trying to change. I don't know that we've changed and thought through enough how we train our PMs, right? Is I, I will tell you, I'm a, I, you know, you heard my background, right? I'm a hardware guy. I grew up as a hardware guy. Uh, I've had some people that work for me on one of my hardware programs. And then the next job was like PM business systems or PM, you know, modeling and simulation. Uh, that individual who was an incredible individual really didn't have the right training to manage software, right? So if you think about, you know, uh, our acquisition training, um, I don't know when you look at the things that are, are, you know, every one of our programs, you know, you look at the next generation combat vehicle, whatever it is, it's going to be really a track via a, a, a computer with tracks under it, right? It's going to be a major computer. So every, everybody really needs to understand that. I don't know that we've adjusted the training yet to take into consideration software development, cybersecurity, digital engineering, the future of acquisition would be probably where I would think um, is one of the areas we really got to focus on. I don't know if that's what Katie's thinking or not. Oh, that, that we put our PMs, they're more concerned about their certs than their quals. And that the PM, when he's looking at a supply chain, right, and he's looking at it, the program manager in the government has very little insight beyond the fact that they talk to the prime. They, they talk to the prime, the prime and the PM, they, they, they are lock in step. And what our contracting, where we, we bug our contracting is, is that the prime doesn't necessarily understand who is all in the supply chain and what risk they hold. Right. That was a big thing um, with the F-35. Right. That was one of the discovery tools that we used in the F-35 program was, OK, Lockheed, tell us who's in the program. And Lockheed came and when due to contract privity, seeing down their supply chain. So the CMMC was supposed to help both the government and the, the prime understand risk. 
And the PM that's coming in, that may not be a software centric PM, right? It may not be his bailiwick, right? He's there, he's got a two to three year assignment to be there. It helps a great deal to reduce, okay, do I understand that everybody working on this program gets what the UI is and that they're, they're protecting it and they understand how to protect it. The PM is relying on the core, the contracting officer to vet and make sure that everybody that's coming on board is doing the right thing, right? That's their job. And the prime is relying on the fact that everybody that they're teaming with is coming along to do the right thing to move forward. Before we continue with this great conversation, I've got to tell you about our sponsor, BlackRock Engineering and Technology. BlackRock recently launched an innovative new solution, Chief Information Security Officer as a Service, or CISO as a Service. This solution is tailored to small and medium businesses that may not have the budget or understand the need for a Chief Information Security Officer. BlackRock Engineering and Technology's professionals have decades of experience. BlackRock will fill in the gap for your CISO needs at a fraction of the salary of a C-suite ex executive. For more information, check out our website at www.blackingetech.com. Now, back to the show. And there's no auditing accountability. There's no check check box on that. And that's why we, we, we lost, right? That's where we're losing it. And how do you change acquisition where it's a very litigious society? How do you change the mindset of risk being part of the PM's world and, and not working in an environment of 100% risk reduction because that's never going to be? Where do you get to a level of, okay, I have risk reduction strategies built into this. I'm doing the absolute best I can. I have to understand I can never get away from entirely all risk. But here are the things that I've done to reduce it to move forward. Because Kevin used to say to us in, in staff calls and in meetings, you know, 80% of the solution is something we should move out on. Getting it to the 100% perfect solution is never going to happen, right? So what does the 80% look like? And I think where we are sitting right now in this world, like I'm getting um, taught, you know, people are, are talking to me on um, many um, different platforms. And they're like, Katie, you're talking to us all about the, the past CMMC, where we are, you know, they, they can't see we're small businesses and, you know, we need help in small business and, and okay. And this is the conversation I love with Kevin, right? What is it you need small business? Tell us what it is you want and you need to be successful within reason. Okay. And Kevin used to go to, go ahead. Yeah, kind of a question on that, right? There always seems to be this reluctance for incremental improvement, right? I mean, is that something that you guys saw that was just common where, hey, we're trying to get perfect, trying to get perfect, but there always seems to be this resistance to, to and reluctance of like, hey, incremental improvements as far as on that. Um, you guys talked about acquisition reform uh, second there. I, I see Frank Kendall saying I'd rather it be called something like acquisition, um, what is it, acquisition improvement, right, rather than reform. And I kind of see this as far as, okay, incremental improvements as far as in that, in security, in the approach to acquisition. Can you 
go into that a little bit for our listeners just to kind of talk about that reluctance that was there as far as like, look, 80% solution, it's incremental, we'll continue to build on that. What did you find there? You know, I could start, right? So um, yeah, it's absolutely the situation, right? Um, Like I said, is a a lot of times we all focus on acquisition where um, it's a, there are a lot of things that are around acquisition and requirements being one. My observation is, and, and I can understand it, right? In many instances, the people writing the requirement, which are the people in uniform, weren't, weren't going to accept 80% solution because their experience says, I have one shot of getting what I want, so I always want everything. And what I would tell you is that behavior, as, as a line I've always said, is if you want everything yesterday for nothing, which is tends to be what they want, you get nothing, right? We continually use the scope. There are many programs you can look across the services um, that um, we made the requirements too hard. We didn't fund it quite uh, well, and it ended up being terminated because we wanted 100%. The technology wasn't there or the funding wasn't there. I absolutely agree with Kendall is really, I mean, this whole thing about reform where you got to just throw things out and start over and you got to, you know, everything's got to be that so that it's just dumb, right? Is you got to continue to improve it, you know, and, and, I'll, and I'll use the, that's like the, the, the stuff that Katie worked on. And that's probably my biggest frustration, right? Is we were when we went through it, as Katie told you, some of the the idea, the the what CMMC came up to be was all Katie because she was amazing. But the concept was my idea, and it was it was really my experience from being a quality guy and being involved in software development, right? And so my observation was the government is never going to do it internal to themselves because we never resource it, right? We may resource it when we start, but over time, we always nickel and diamond and it wasn't going to be a crap. So my thinking was it really needed to be like, you know, the quality standard of, uh, you know, uh, ISO 9000. Um, and you needed to have third-party certifiers like we do in quality. You know, you'll have, you'll, I will tell you 95% of the people believe the process works. You'll have 5% of the people that no matter what you do, the, all, the, all they'll do is bitch. And we had a few of them. Um, and so the idea was my idea, Katie did all the work, right? And, and when Katie came to me originally and said, hey, we need to do all this stuff, I forget. I think she had like a two-year program. And I told her, absolutely not. It's got to be a year. And she looked at me like I had 17 heads, right? And I explained to her that if we didn't get this in and started before we leave, it would go away, right? And so we were clear the whole time. Our idea is we're going to go forward. We know we're not right, but we're going to adjust as we go forward. Katie and I had many, you know, we were, uh, there's no waivers and all that stuff. We knew when it came live and it came to, we were going to have, not waivers, we hate the idea of waivers because waivers become too easy over time, but we could have 
a, a poem where you're not completely, where you have a pro, how are you going to become 100% compliant? And it's going to be a risk assessment, not a go, no go, even though we set it up as a no go. We knew as we went through it, we were going to adjust, but we didn't want to get people at the beginning to think there was a waiver. And that was, uh, you know, uh, that was our whole idea, right? Is let's get it going. Let's do the, you know, the far rule changing process just because we know we're never going to, you look at everything, we all the time wait for wait forever to be 100% uh, correct. And even when we roll it out, then it's not 100% correct. We see that the things that we would have never found until we started doing the process. So that was our whole idea with CMMC. Let's go. We know we're, we're not 100%. We're no, we're, we know we're going to continue to change. We'll continue to work with industry. We'll continue to work with small business. And then you saw the, the new administration came in. And I don't know whether it's just because it was part of the last administration or you know another thing that I have had this conversation with Katie a hundred times um, that I, uh, in hindsight, I absolutely screwed up was allowing Katie's job to be moved to industrial policy, right? Um, part of me uh, um, you know, uh, could rationalize why that made sense. But if you look at an industry where security, an industry company that really gets it right is that the cybersecurity of the CISO reports directly to the C-suite. And by definition, when Katie reported to either me or uh, Miss Lord, she got a seat at the table. When she went into industri industrial policy, doesn't get a seat at the table, never mind Katie when she was doing cyber. Um, so it was one of those things that when they took like the, you think about it, this pause they're taking is like a pause to nowhere, where by now they would have figured out what works and doesn't work and would have been able to exactly what you said, be able to refine it and continue to improve. Uh, we could wait forever to have nothing or we can uh, continue to improve um, as, we, as we go forward on that process. And, and I, I will tell you, um, they, they, um, when General Hyten was there as the uh, uh, vice chairman, um, or, uh, the, you know, he absolutely was trying to make the requirements process more flexible, but historically um, that doesn't happen. And the other part that I would say, when people talk about innovation in the Department of Defense, right? Um, one of the things that Mike Brown uh, came up with, he was the uh, Defense Innovation Unit out in California. I think he might still be there, but I know he, he's uh, uh, retiring. That's DIUX? Um, yeah, it was the X, but they took the X out of it, right? Okay. Yep. Um, but he basically had a line that I absolutely agree. The Department of Defense does not have an innovation problem. They have an adaption problem, right? is they don't know how to adapt technology, right? You think about it, you know, innovators, when they design these technologies, have no idea what they're going to do with it. But once they see this really neat thing, they know how to adapt it and use it. The Department of Defense has no ability to do that. They, they have a tendency to always want to put new crap in the same old way of doing business. I mean, they need to, in a lot of the areas, they need to figure out how to change the way they think to adapt technology 
um, is where their bigger problem is, you know, doing the, you know, the ORSA analysis and the mission analysis and the CONOPS, uh, how would I use a new technology versus, you know, uh, that's a neat thing. How do I, 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 the poster child for how bad the Department of Defense is of adapting technology is business systems, right? <laughs> the Department of Defense takes a commercial business system and when, then what they try to do is re, rewrite the code to be to, to make it into the old crap we got rid of, right? And almost inevitably, the Department of Defense business systems do not go well. There's a few that have gone well, but, and that's because the functional people understood their number one goal was not change the commercial product. But historically, what the Department of Defense does is try to change the commercial product to be exactly like the crap they're getting rid of or replacing. You know, so those are a couple of things. I don't know, Katie, you want to comment on our uh, improvement versus reform? <laughs> I, I don't know that I could do it better. I, I think that it's, you know, as I, I sit here today in what is today, August, whatever, 2022, and I look at all the momentum and inertia that we put into it. And I think this is where I really want this, this series to go this podcast to go is we haven't gotten any better. We haven't, things haven't gotten any better with all the work, all the effort, the CMMC, the Adaptive Acquisition Framework, we've gone backwards. And industry is losing, you know, one of the, I think the greatest, you know, moments you could take out of this podcast, Lojo, to put it out there to get industry to listen is when and, and this is not a political conversation, right? When you had the Kevin Fahey's of the world, and I'm going to say Bill LaPlante, and, and, and Kevin and I both had a lot of interaction with Bill LaPlante, like delivered on compromise. Bill LaPlante is the secretary for acquisition and sustainment right now. He replaced Ellen Moore. I have a lot of respect for Bill LaPlante. He wrote delivered on compromise. That came out of MITRE. Kevin and I agreed uh, wholeheartedly with delivered on compromise with, with one exception, right? Um, and, and that, you know, we were, we have to deliver capability, you know, and, and the analogy will go, you know, and our time frame is coming up. So I want to make this really as concise as possible. There's no point to delivering a capability if it's already been um, expelled by our adversary or by a competitor by the time we deliver it to uh, the warfighter. There's no worry about, you know, schedule if you're delivering it on a particular day, if the adversary beats you to market, right? And there's no worry about the cost, right? Because it, we've put all this money into creating this program and the adversaries copied it at a lesser rate and our money is, has been wasted. So we've, we've come so far and gone far, so far back. And what are the things that we can do today with like the gun to our head to make it better right now? And, and Kevin got out of, you know, the, after January 20th, he went back into industry. He spent the past, what, 18 months in industry trying to advise industry on how to get good. And we're still not good yet. How do we get there? How do we, how do we make, if Kevin was king for the day and, and Kevin, you could go out into industry and, and you could magically between Congress and industry do two things to make it better today for the warfighter, what would those two things be? 
Yeah, so the the two two might be hard, right? Um, you know, because um, what I would tell you that I, I guess I'm not as doom and gloom, right? As I am frustrated, right? Um, you know, because a lot of the things that we tried to do, as I, I said, is uh, you make the things uh, simpler, you get people to do critical thinking. And a lot of what we did, I will tell you, and Ms. Lord, I give her a lot of credit, we delegated authority and responsibility to where it needed to be for the most part. There's this mentality in the Pentagon in a lot of instances that the way to manage programs is that DOD manages them all. I'm, I'm one of the believers delegated is down as far as you can. Um, and then have the metrics and hold people accountable. You'd be amazed at what people will do will be accountable. The, I would tell you that, and, and, and I'll, I'll give uh, Katie did Chris O'Donnell a lot of credit. Chris O'Donnell's one of the people, you know, first is, is her thing on Bill LaPlante, you know, Carrie Wibben in the, in the Pentagon, she was on our team now is with Exeter. Uh, uh, was the one who had Mida do the deliver on compromise and Bill LaPlante's team did a great job. Um, it really made you scared about cybersecurity, which really, well, I read it. And that's when I immediately came up with this idea of, you know, just like the old, you know, software maturity stuff, we need to have third party certifiers. I'll tell you, until Katie came in, I couldn't get anybody to listen. Um, so the, I would tell you, the, you know, Katie said we agree with most of it. I did get in trouble is the one part I didn't agree with. They had the recommendation is that we made cybersecurity a trade-off with cost schedule performance. And my reason that I think that's stupid, and I used a swore at a conference once and it got published in the paper. Um, but because if you did that, it would always get traded off. My, my thing was make it a requirement, just like you make quality a requirement and earn value a requirement, which is where we ended up. But the one, the one thing that I think that is my most frustrating, as you heard me before, is we, you really need to make sure your requirements align with the state of the technology or maturity of the technology and cost and schedule. If, I were, if the one area that the department, and Katie, you know, we talked a lot about this, is the one area we have the tendency in the department to fund widgets, right? I want the next aircraft carrier. I want the next the fighter jet. I want the next tank. I want the next helicopter, right? Opposed to, and, and, and they have made progress, right? Um, but I would argue not enough, and a lot of people want to hurry to acquisition, is they got to, um, you know, do the ORSA analysis and mission analysis to make it clear, of, this is what I, this is really what I want. And oh, by the way, I've done the prototyping and analysis that when I make it a program of record, I know I can deliver. Too often than not, I start programs that I'm that that aren't ready, and and that's why it takes so long, right? Is is you you force programs into a program of record that aren't ready, and and you want them to take five years, and they should have taken seven, and because you funded them for five years and you underfunded them, they take ten, and it, it, aligning the, the 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 that process is important. Um, and I tell you, this is one of those things that. Um, won't necessarily make acquisition faster, but I think is, is probably the second most doing the analysis as a collective group, right, um, is important. Uh, the one thing I point out is you hear a lot of people say the re what we need to do for acquisition is you get got to get those acquisition weenies to take more risk. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard anyone say, because if you read every 
GAO report of IG report on why acquisition screwed up, it's because we took too much risk. What I do believe is there are tools, there, there are better ways and ways that we could buy down risk quicker, like digital engineering. I think digital engineering is, 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 Amen. is one of those tools that we do a lot of analysis and we can really mitigate risk faster opposed to accept more risk, which is a, a, what a lot of people are saying. I will tell you though, is the people around, it, it blows my mind today, okay, that how come for costing programs, I can't use artificial intelligence and, and machine learning. I've been costing programs for about a hundred years. I know all the parameters and it still takes me like two years to come up with a program cost estimate, right? We're asking software developers to like uh, spin out software monthly, but I can't get the costers to cost it, but every two years, right? The, the processes around acquisition gotta also improve. The other one that I would point to, and I, I, I am an absolute believer of test and evaluation. But we still test and evaluate in the old cold uh, war ages, right? We still, I, I, I believe we test so much that we don't get to get through the gigabytes of data. We, we don't even know what it means, but we know it makes us feel good because we, that's another area where I don't understand with digital engineering and artificial intelligence and machine learning, why I can't make a two year long test, maybe three months, right? There are things that are related to acquisition that an acquisition PM has a very little say in there. And then the other one, I just will go back to um, the supply chain stuff, right? Um, I always have been a believer of a supply chain. I will tell you as a program manager and a PEO, I frustrated myself because for the most part, what a PEO PM does is they buy the production items they once they're done once they've done their 10 years or five years of production they're really not in the supply chain anymore right so that's where the acquisition guys and sustainment guys got to be hand in hand i've always been frustrated by the department of defense's lack of interest in really understanding the supply chain that said it's 10 times more complex now than it was during my career for, for a couple of reasons, you know, one is the, the stuff Katie talked about is the cybersecurity stuff, but part, part and partial of that, which you've read a lot about is the foreign investment. And in a lot of instances, foreign investment is bad foreign investment. And then I'll tell you the third one that I've done a lot of thinking about, and I don't know what it means, is we, we've been big on, let's get more venture capital, you know, private equity in the defense department. Yes. There's part of that that concerns me, though, is because historically a defense department contractor has the people that, you know, even though they're big in profit, they tend to care about national security. I worry in some instances, does a private equity or capital venture really care about anything other than how do I make money and sell it like three years later, right? And, and I don't know the extent of that, but that's a new thing that I've started thinking through um, that, 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 that worries me. And I'm not sure I should be worried, but, it, it, there are, but my point is, and Katie did a lot of that. And I'm, I'm happy to see that the department has continued some of it. And Katie, you gotta give them some credit, is the idea yep. that the Department of Defense needs to have, I don't even know if it's common tools. They've got to have tools that they work together 
to uh, continue to assess the defense industrial base, you know, for all the things I just said, um, you know, you think about it. I mean, uh, microelectronics is something we've talked about. I mean, we talked about that before I retired my first time around. It was so depressing to come back into the Pentagon and see that we've done absolutely nothing about it. It seems like we're starting to move in the right direction. Katie has a lot of thoughts on that and good ideas on that. I mean, I'm happy that people are finally starting to acknowledge it. I'm not sure we're on the right path, but I don't think any of us knew. I know I didn't have a clue. I mean, I know more about damn pharmaceuticals now than I ever wanted to because of COVID, but I had no idea that, you know, like uh, 80 some odd percent of our pharmaceuticals come from China, right? I mean, I don't think any American knew that. Um, so there are a lot of concerns uh, 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 of our industrial base in general is probably the other area that I would consider the highest priority on how do you continue to improve acquisition. That's all for this episode of The Lojo Show. We want to thank Katie Arrington for coming on with us today. We have given Katie a platform to give our audience her unfiltered perspective. If you want to help us out, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a, leave a review. That's all for this episode of The Lojo Show. We want to thank Katie Arrington for coming on with us today. We have given Katie a platform to give our audience her unfiltered perspective. If you want to help us out, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. If you want to see updates on the series and more content, follow our Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube pages. If you have questions for Katie or want to come on the show, you can send us an email at officiallojoshow at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. We will be releasing a new episode in this series every Monday at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We hope you are as excited as we are. With that, we will say goodbye, have a great week, stay safe, and stay secure.